Awesome. We are, we are joined by Matthew D. LaPlante. Do you, do you always go by the D in the middle? I want to make sure I get uh, this right. I mean, like when my friends introduce me, like when we're out to dinner with people, people don't go like, hey, this is Matthew D. But, <laughs> but I, actually, I, I started using the D because when I first started as a writer, uh, there was another Matthew LaPlante out there. And uh, screw him. Yeah, but he's gone now. He's disappeared, so I could probably get rid of it. I feel like there's there's a Matt Kirshen that I've pushed to something like page ten of Google, and I can't imagine he's happy with me. But there we go. I've won the I've won the online battle. This is there's a really good story here about like people with similar names who are like fighting with each other for google predominance yeah abso- oh god absolutely well, you're, you're the about- journalist you're the i'm falling i'm, I'm so on this <laughs> <laughs> well this uh, by, by the way, we'll, we'll get into the book in, in a second I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book it, it was a great read um but you you had a f- relatively unconventional route into science writing via the military and then straight journalism and now the science well, can, you, can you talk a bit about how you ended up in this world yeah. Um, so first I should say, like, I pretty much failed or nearly failed every single one of my science classes in high school, um, which is why my grade point average was not really good, which is why my college options were not really good, which is one of the many reasons why I ended up in the military um, and uh, never really thought that I'd return to science, even though I liked, I actually really liked science. I love science. I just wasn't good at it. Or I didn't feel like I was good at it. This is something uh, we, we hear so much when we have when we do episodes with comedian guests, which is our, our regular episodes. And so many people are fascinated by the subject and really enjoyed it and then just got put off by a teacher that wasn't that competent or just, you know, just didn't find their way in. And then just once you get a little bit behind in the science classes, it's it can be really hard to catch up. And people who would have really loved the subject, as clearly you would have done by the way you've then dived headlong into it, just end up not taking that path. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, it's tragic, too, because for some of us, it just takes a little longer or a different teacher or a different kind of introduction that is not the kind of introduction that we get in uh, a typical class. And, and, and the result I think is really tragic right now, especially because look like we need to turn more people onto science. More people need to love this and respect this because scientists are um, what, like, like the Paul Revere's of, of our world right now they're screaming at us to pay attention and the more of us feel like we're turned off the worse off we're going to be long term right uh so so let's let's get on to this book which i I don't think i actually said the name of the book it's called superlative the biology of extremes and it's kind of you even you referenced this book at the beginning of yours it feels like it's it's essentially the guinness book of records but with the explanation bit added like the sort of (laughs) You don't just list, here's the fastest, biggest, smallest, uh, smartest animal. You then go into both the why and then what this means and what what are the implications. Yeah, like if you if you like cliff notes, Guinness the Guinness Book of World Records is like the cliff notes for my book. So you can totally skip over reading my book and you can just go to Guinness <laughs> and read all the, the records about animals and plants and you're fine. You're good. You save yourself some time that way. Uh, but if you if you want to know, okay, well... Elephants are pretty big, but what does that mean? What are the implications? Then you should get this book. And I, again, I, I really recommend it. So let's 
skipping around the book a bit, well, can we start with elephants? Because elephants crop up, unsurprisingly, several times in this book. Uh, yeah. But firstly, uh, let, can we talk about elephants and cancer and the implications? Yeah, this is so amazing. Um, and I think it is becoming more and more known, although the reasons for it maybe not so much. But elephants have incredibly low rates of cancer. Um, and if you think about the way that cancer uh, often materializes, um, you know, it doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense because in order for an elephant to go from the size it is when it is born to the size it is when it is an adult, cells have to be dividing rapidly. And, and an elephant in totality has has so many more cells in its body than we do in ours. Its cells aren't any real bigger than ours, right? It, it just has more of them, which means more chances for mutation, which means more chances for malignant mutations, which means more chances for cancer, except for it doesn't happen that way. They have exceptionally low rates of cancer. Um, and so part of this book is devoted to, to helping people understand why that is and how what we might learn from that uh in terms of of human health right because again like it's it, this is a theme that comes up time and time again in this book but the sort of the studying of the extremes gives us insight into humans like well, how did something get this big how did what does it mean for something to be this small uh you talk quite a bit about the the length of dna or the amount of genetic information from organism to organism and how that doesn't correlate very closely with what you might expect no, I mean, we are so similar to other organisms, right? And I think everybody kind of knows this, like we share all this genetic material with bananas. Um, but right. I think what people don't kind of take away from that often is we kind of go, oh, wow, that's really nifty that we're kind of like 40% banana or whatever it is. Um, but what people don't take away from that is, look, if you know that and you know that bananas are doing something, for instance, with their DNA – there is a possibility that if we share those sequences, we can understand how to better do that with our DNA. Now, I don't know that there's a lot we can learn about being human from being bananas, but there is a lot we can learn about being human from elephants or from uh, mice or from rats or from like a lot of different model organisms. But in particular, I believe the organisms that are at the extreme, the ones that have evolved and had to solve uh, evolutionary challenges to evolve into a biological niche that nobody else has filled. And those are the ones at the extreme. Those are the ones that are superlative in, in one way or another. Yeah. And, and you talk about, uh, is it Cope's law, like the guiding force that, that m would make one think that as a, as a species succeeds, it would become greater in size. Is it Cope's law? Am I, am I forgetting the name of it? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it's named for the biologist Edwin Cope. Um, and actually he, he didn't even come up with this. Somebody else came up with it and then sort of like they based it on Cope's research. And so they named it after him, but it, it, it didn't come from him, but it basically says that over time and broadly speaking, because there are lots and lots of exceptions, an organism in a single lineage gets larger over time. And if you look at things, you know, in a really long-term sense, that totally makes sense. We all started as little tiny itsy bitsy microorganisms, and now we're the size that we are. And we also share the world with blue whales and elephants and giraffes and rhinos and hippopotamuses and all all of these other things that are really really big. So, and and we, but for but for the fact that we had this big comet crash into our Earth, 
we'd also share the world with dinosaurs, which were really, really big. So kind of like from a long-term perspective, that makes sense. But it also makes sense even in shorter-term perspectives within individual lineages that we see this. And it kind of waxes and wanes over time. But ultimately, things tend to get bigger, especially mammals tend to get bigger uh, in a single lineage over time, up until the point they kind of like drop off the cliff. So there's like this really steep J-curve, I guess. Um, but, but what we see, like Kopsla talks about Size, but we see this in a lot of things over time. Yes, peop, uh, organisms evolve into to be into the niche of being biggest, but they also evolve into the niche of being fastest, and they evolve into the niche of being the uh, smallest, and they and and all of these other superlative designators. And we can we can learn something from all of these organizations, organisms, excuse me, that that evolve to follow a Cope's law sort of trajectory in whatever the trait is that we're looking at. Yeah, and we sort of fall in the middle of, of most things apart from intelligence. Uh, yeah, although I would argue that we fall on the low side of intelligence, but... Right. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the dolphin chapter, you get into you get into that a bit. And, uh, oh my god, they're incredible. But I mean, like, but they're incredible in the sort of way that we, we can understand intelligence, the sort of way we've defined intelligence, and we can look at a dolphin, which is really similar in a lot of ways to us, obviously, another, a fellow mammal, mm-hmm. uh, and we say, oh yeah, they are really, really smart, and they are, and they have, like, they do things with their brains that we can't even, like, fathom. Um, but you know, there's other organisms too that right. you mentioned slime and ants, right? Yeah, like little single-celled amoebas and ants, which use their brains in completely different ways than us. The ways we couldn't even—I mean, if anybody even came close to the way that they used their brain, or if they used their brain in a way that was even close to the way an ant uses their brain, we'd be like, oh my God, that person is a savant. Can you believe that they can keep all that information in their head at one time and access it when they actually need it? It's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, octopuses are, are another one that is just like an extremely, extremely intelligent organism if we just take a side step away from how we look at intelligence. So it feels like we, humans are the most intelligent because we have defined what intelligence means according to the thing we're best at. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I am the best looking human in the world because I've defined what <laughs> yeah. it means to be looking. You are the platonic ideal of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, the, there, there was one chapter... It's a little bit of a heartbreaking thing in the middle, because uh, well, I didn't know this story, but when you when you were talking about some of the oldest uh, organisms on Earth, and you mentioned a tree, and I I winced just reading this story, uh, but I, I didn't realize that um, someone cut down the oldest tree without realizing it. Oh my gosh, it was so... When I heard this, and everybody who's Everyone. ever heard this. I'm sure all of our listeners right now are hearing this story as well. It just... You, you... <laughs> was it, was it just the tool got stuck? They're like, ah, this tool's not cutting it, just to do the boring. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, Radiolab did a great piece on this quite a few years back. Um, and so I, I, I highly advise people to search that out. But basically, this guy who wanted to study bristlecone pines and was a graduate student at the time went out and he was taking some boring samples, cutting a little tiny straw-like cut out of the middle of of a tree, and you pull that out and then you count the rings, and you know you can learn a lot about a tree's growth patterns and how old it is that way without having to cut the tree down. Uh, but unfortunately, his boring tool got stuck, 
And then he went to, you know, like the forestry officials in the area and they said, well, there's a lot of them out there. Just go ahead and cut that one down to get your tool back. And so he did. And then he took he was staying at a hotel. He actually (laughs) took a section of the tree with him back to the hotel. He laid it out on the table and he started counting the rings and he kept counting. And when he got to the number he got to, he freaked out. And then he went back and he counted again and he freaked out even more because he had just cut down the oldest bristlecone pine ever identified. Uh, uh, do, do you want to say the number? Because I couldn't, I think if you even told that story and I had to guess, I, I, I wouldn't have got anywhere near the number that it, it was. It was like 4,800 and something oh years old. I don't know the exact number, but it was, I mean, we're talking like this thing had been around with the, I mean, like this thing was old when Christ was around. Right. Yeah. It was, it was even old for a bristlecone pine when Christ was around. Um, it, it, it was it absolutely. Yeah. You're sort of talking first books of the Bible level of. <laughs> like when the when the world was created according to like the literal translation <laughs> of the Bible, this thing was already old. Right. Um, but but you know this guy never lived it down. It was really sad. In fact, uh, so I'm here in Salt Lake City. I'm only a few miles away from where this guy ended up teaching at the University of Utah, and um, he carried this with him like as a mark of shame forever. And in fact, he stopped studying trees. He started t- studying deserts instead. Like the place where you can go where there are no trees. <laughs> the rest of his life. I mean, not to make too light of it, but you know, if you're that guy and you get to that number, don't you just kind of uh, sort of push that off to the side? Like, what what tree? I didn't hear about a need. Like no one I else had counted. I the evidence, really. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just, can you erase but, some of the rings somehow? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like you could probably scrub them. You know, bristlecone pines are fascinating when you look at them. Actually, I, I got a chance to spend time with one of the sections of this tree. Um, and there's a lot of researchers, by the way. This is absolutely true. There are researchers who will not physically touch this thing because they believe it's cursed. <laughs> so, so they've like like. But I got a chance to like run my fingers over it and and look at the lines and and bristlecones. They don't grow much every year. It's it's fractions of a millimeter every year. And so the rings are really really tight together, and you really have to look at them through a microscope or or at least through a magnifying lens to really actually even count them. Um, but when you start counting them, it's just it's absolutely incredible. You you know you can go back a decade in, you know, the width of, uh, you know, a, like less than a width of a finger. And then you can go back centuries in, in just the width of a couple of fingers. And pretty soon you're, you know, you may be only a hand in and you're thousands of years back into history. Oh, so what's the uh, like ballpark diameter of this, of this tree he cut down? So let me think here. I'm trying to, so it, it would spread out this researcher at the university of Arizona spread it out on his desk for me. And, and it went like the entire length of his desk. And I'm thinking the desk was probably six feet long, probably. Okay. So I mean like the, for something so old, yeah, you so know, like for something that's not, growing every year, that is not that big. Yeah. 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 But it's absolutely fascinating. And I, you know, I went to uh, California's white mountains to hunt down the, the current oldest known bristlecone pine. And this thing used to a long, long, long time ago, decades and decades ago, it had a sign next to it that said the world's oldest bristlecone pine, but people were loving it to death. They were taking pieces of it home with them. <laughs> so the researchers popped it up and now it's really hard to find this thing. 
like people are really secretive about it. But um, I got a couple of clues from one researcher and I put them together with a clue, some clues from another researcher and I got to go and see this thing. And it was just, um, I mean, God, like some people go to Mecca, some people go to Rome, you know, Jerusalem, whatever. Like I was standing at the foot of the world's oldest bristlecone pine. It was pretty cool. That does, that does sound really cool. I would have, I would have been all about it. So let's uh, jump around a little bit. I'm jumping through the book because uh, there's a there's a couple of chapters that speak to me uh, because earlier on in this year we got to go to Australia and we did some shows in Cairns and we saw a bunch of they have research labs where they have a bunch of some of the deadliest aquatic creatures. <sighs> Awesome, yeah. Uh, the, the, they call it the shelf of death. It's pretty incredible. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and and you go you go into uh, a fair bit in the book into into uh, toxic animals or venomous animals and, uh, and and what that means for humans and what that means for life. Yeah, I mean, so one of the really, um, I mean, like we could have gone into a bunch of different superlative topics, right? And so we kind of we decided on my editor and I decided on you know sort of like eight, um, but one of them was was deadly, and you can define deadly in a lot of different ways. So this gave us a lot of room to roam, right? What what's the most poisonous? What animal eats the most other animals? What animal destroys the most other animals? That answer is easy. That's us. Um, and uh, but but I'm terrified of snakes like I've got that whatever the holy crap I'm terrified of snakes gene is I've got that <laughs> um, and so so I got to be honest like a lot of this chapter was done like diving head in with you know like the scientists and the researchers and and the animals themselves um, you know and I'm I'm very happy to say that was the case with the dolphins and the trees and all the you know like the fun monkeys stuff. and all that all the fun stuff but man I reported almost the entire section about snakes from my bedroom underneath my covers <laughs> <laughs> but what what one of the things that really surprised me reading the book uh, uh, the a, a theory that I hadn't heard before is that s- snakes may have driven or at least accelerated human evolution. Yeah, yeah, this is amazing. I didn't know this before either until I started working on this. Um, so there's this little part of your brain, and whether you are terrified of snakes like I am, or you are like you totally love snakes like a lot of people do and want them to be your pets because you're crazy. Uh, <laughs> I used to this- have some pet snakes, but uh, I grew out of it. But yeah, <laughs> this this part of your brain lights up when you see a snake. And here's a really weird thing. It doesn't do that for anything that's like a snake. It doesn't do that for lizards. And it doesn't do that for worms or anything shaped like a snake. There is a part of our brain that scientists have not been able to trigger through any other way but to show us pictures or of snakes or actual snakes. And this part of our brain lights up. And the theory is that this is a very, very ancient part uh, of our mammalian brain. Monkeys do this too, by the way. Um, that helped us survive. People who were good at picking out snakes, you know, even if they weren't afraid of them, they were just like, oh, there's a snake there. I better go the other way because those things can kill me. Um, those are the people that became a strong selective force. And those are the people, the, the organisms, I should say, weren't people back then, the organisms that survived. And um, interestingly, like, uh, uh, primates that are not in places where there are or historically have been snakes don't have this part of their brain. 
And I wonder if a few generations have also evolved to have a healthy skepticism of uh, peanut brittle served in cylindrical tin cans. <laughs> <laughs> like there'll be a part of our brain that'll be like the peanut brittle yep. like, synapse. Yeah. I think it's highly possible. Yeah. The, the, why, why have it in a can? I mean, it's not the way you would serve peanut brittle. Yeah, the... <laughs> you know, that joke never gets old either. It's like one of those, like, uh, oh. And I haven't seen one since I was like eight years old. I don't even know if they still make them. But, the, uh, those ones... Oh, no, no, they do. I, I, I got surprised by one by a, a student, a graduate student from China brought me this peanut brittle can. It was Chinese peanut brittle. Oh, that's how they get you. Yeah. Like, oh, this just totally must be some foreign custom. Oh, damn you, yeah. international prankster. Uh, but interestingly, they it was still like the context. He wasn't like, oh, this is like Chinese, like some Chinese candy. The, it was still peanut brittle. It was always peanut brittle. <laughs> and then the snake and yeah. I think in, in Britain it was far more, the, the snapping gum was far more common. Oh, that was a fun one. Have, but then but that's always, it's always, I remember I had one and then our friends had one. And it never works because you basically have to have like a forgiving adult who's just like, all right, I'll indulge this joke. Because you always go like, here, take a piece of gum from the side here. As take opposed it. to just handing over the pack. Yeah, you just, yeah you're just always like, the, no kid has, I, I believe, I, I, I have to be proven wrong, but I believe no child has in the history of pranking successfully worked out how to hand over a gimmicked pack of gum in a natural way. <laughs> <laughs> it's always had in like, you're... Oh right, that's not a brand that exists, and you're hand- you're holding it weird. <laughs> yeah, it's always an off version of <laughs> it's just, play that's, on Wrigley. That's not how someone holds something. Um, also, like no uncle has ever had a niece or a nephew pull his finger without having the intention of farting. <laughs> yeah, why else? It's just, like never. Like there's no other social context in which like a kid would be like, yeah, sure, uncle, I'll pull your finger. Yeah, hey, you want to be a chiropractor when you grow up? <laughs> <Do it. laughs> Uncle pain I need help with. Yeah. Um, well, when we were in Cairns, as well as having the shelf of death, uh, they had another lab that was full of mosquitoes, because that that they do a lot of that research there at James Cook University. And you did they talk- make you go into the mosquito room? We did go into the mosquito room. Oh my god! How horrible was that? <laughs> was a- I think it wasn't currently active or stocked there, as much as it-, it wasn't. There were there were a few residual mosquitoes but it wasn't as bad as they were showing us the room that they go into when it's full and they just have a researcher sit there with bare legs and arms just sit like sitting on a sh- wearing like shorts and a shirt in a recreation of someone's backyard sometimes not even a researcher but just like a, a grad student who's hard up for 20 bucks they just pay them to sit there for an hour and get stung endlessly <laughs> seriously you know what? One of the if you, if you want to see something that's at, at once hilarious and also terrifying about what it says about the human condition, watch the TED talk that Bill Gates gave, where he purported to open up a jar that had mosquitoes in it that were malaria carrying mosquitoes, and he's in this room with a bunch of like the most privileged people in the world, right? And you can hear this little gasp at first. And then suddenly people realize, I mean, it doesn't even like laugh, like the idea that this crazed billionaire would unleash (laughs) malaria carrying mosquitoes on a bunch of privileged white people does not even last like a second before people start laughing. And they realize, oh, we would never be affected by malaria. That could never happen to us. (laughs) And it's it's both really funny and also really terrifying about what what it says about you know, the fact that we really have, have turned our backs largely on on people in 
the parts of the world that are actually day to day going to battle with the prospect of of malaria. Right, because malaria. It, when we're getting back to getting back to superlatives, which is the theme of the book, malaria carrying mosquitoes and mosquitoes in general are considered to be, aside from humans, the deadliest animal, or the the animal that kills the most humans. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even that's you know, like you got to quali- qualify that right because there's billions or trillions and trillions of of mosquitoes in Africa. So each individual mosquito isn't very deadly, but as a collective, they are quite deadly against against humans right and you you talk about how amongst them ways that people are talking about mitigating it and and you say this has come up in the it came up when we were in cairns and we were talking to some of the researchers there and it's come up a few times in the show you mentioned the fact that there are scientists who believe that mosquitoes are one of the few organisms on earth that we could just afford to lose and we could just get rid of them there is no potentially no negative effect other you know you you don't like bee stings and you're not that keen on honey, but you get rid of bees and a lot of bad shit happens. And same right. goes for most other animals, big and small, that people might not like. I was expecting, when I first heard this, I, I was like, I was expecting to find some ecologist who would be like, oh man, no, we can't do that. I mean, maybe we don't know why mosquitoes exist, but surely we need them. Surely they're part of, you know, like the ecosystem that, that sustains us in this world. And really, like, I talked to ecologists out of college, and some were like, well, maybe we should be a little careful. But no, nobody was like, nah, nah, let's not kill mosquitoes. <laughs> Everybody hates mosquitoes. Right. Even yeah. ecologists hate mosquitoes. And so maybe it, it would be a thing that, like, the first larger thing that we wipe out in the way that we wiped out, for example, smallpox. Yeah, it would be the, the first – well, and the first thing that we intentionally set into extinction – Right. Like everything else that we put into every other animal that we put into extinction, we've done that. Right. You know, well, the first thing that's bigger than a virus or a bacteria that we've set into. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so but this brings up I mean, there's this opens up this Pandora's box. Right. Okay. Like, yeah. Great. Let's say that we can put mosquitoes into extinction. Well, guess what? Like dogs kill a lot of human beings, too. So do snakes. So I mean, like there are a lot of animals out there. Like, where do we draw the line? Um, and in particular, like, where do we draw the line in terms of like, maybe not making an animal extinct, but with the power that we have now to manipulate the genome through technologies such as CRISPR, um, one of the, one of the plans for putting mosquitoes out to pasture is to just change them genetically so that they can't carry malaria anymore. And then to, to use something called gene drive to make sure that that trait carries down up until the point that it's spread itself out across the entire population. All the malaria carrying mosquitoes go away and the ones that can't carry malaria stay. And so, yay, we get to keep mosquitoes, but we've changed mosquitoes. But again, like this opens up this, this question of like, okay, so like, can we make snakes that aren't poisonous? Right. Can we make dogs that don't bite? Can we make human beings who don't vote for Donald Trump? Uh, you know, like these are these are important questions. And, and you also uh, you you also talk about like the the possible huge risk that if you make mosquitoes not deadly, there could be a down the line very bad, unthought of consequence. Yeah, I mean, like, look, we've never done anything with any degree of intentionality that didn't come back and bite us in the ass at some point. 
<laughs> so yeah, I think, I mean, like, even if we can't see the consequences right now, there will be some. Um, that doesn't mean we don't do things, right? I mean, we, we know that there are, are always unintended consequences. We can't account for all of them. Um, so let, um, can we talk a bit about, because you just mentioned uh, a little bit earlier when we talked about mosquitoes, how they are the they are by some metric the deadliest, but not uh, per individual mosquito. And that's something, that's a theme that comes up through the book as well, where you can't just look at superlatives uh, by themselves. You also have to look at superlatives in relation to their size or quantity. For example, when you're talking about the fastest, uh, the, the fastest is very different depending on whether or not you do it relative to its size. Right. Yeah. Like everybody will tell you, you ask any grade school kid and you say like, what's the fastest animal? And they go cheetah. And you go, you're right under certain circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is always, I, I always like doing my, my wife teaches third grade. And so I, I love going in and, and messing with her kids in that way and ruining their relationships with like all of the animals that they love. <laughs> um, but yeah, like cheetahs are incredibly fast if you're measuring fast by the hundred yard dash. Uh, which, you know, like we do, like that's how we decided that Usain Bolt is the fastest man in the world. But we also have marathon runners and we also have swimmers and we also have, I mean, like all people who do other things with their bodies that make them go faster in a set amount of distance. Um, and, and animals are like that too. And of course, humans are all relatively the same size, but animals are not. And so, yeah, a cheetah is very fast for an animal of its size against its body length. But if you're looking for the fastest animal in relative size, it's this little tiny, almost microscopic mite that you can find on the sidewalks in Southern California, which runs the equivalent of something like 1300 miles an hour. <laughs> Uh, which is sort of getting into this the i assume how stan lee came up with spider-man which is just you know hearing some stat about a spider or an ant being able to lift x times its body weight like what if it were human size well if it were human size it'd be subject to the uh you know it would go with the cube of its height and then suddenly it wouldn't be able to do what it does proportionally to its spider size oh my god yeah this is like the entire time that i was writing this book i was i was also coming up with comic book character this was like my when i was in when i was a teenager that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be a comic book artist um and and that didn't work out so well chiefly because i'm not very good at drawing uh but but this like throughout the book i was just thinking like wow man if we could just implant that gene into us then we could run at 1300 miles an hour or you know like turn on a dime or like like kill someone by licking them which would be a really <laughs> cool power yeah. by the way yeah which i guess you could with certain b bacteria on your tongue uh, and you also <laughs> get into that we've talked a lot on our podcast about um gut biome and advances with that and and connections that that have to the rest of our health uh could you talk a little about what's going on in each of our guts at a, at a microscopic level Oh my God, like we carry around more microorganisms inside of us than we actually have cells that make up the parts of our bodies that we typically think of as the parts of our bodies. Our gut biome is just like this amazing, amazing uh, environment that has such implications for how we act. And, and there's all of this research now and it's emerging that you guys know about it. And a lot of people are, are coming to recognize the importance of, of our guts 
to everything else. I mean, like, like we have organisms inside of our bowels that are interacting with the rest of our bodies in such a way that it is implanting thoughts into our mind and controlling like what we do and how we act and whether we're, um, Oh, so I've got this, I've got this show, uh, on Utah public radio called undisciplined where I bring two researchers together from different disciplines. And I had somebody on fairly recently from Oregon state university who is doing, uh, research on, uh, the gut microbiomes of dogs. And she recently came upon a gut profile that is associated with uh, aggressive dogs. You think we always think like breed? Ooh, it's a pit bull, right? And then, but then, then the people, pit bull people go, no, pit bulls are wonderful, and and we get into this. But it actually might not be pit bull or not pit bull. It might be what's inside that pity's tummy. Right, but then it also gets into sort of a chicken and egg thing of going like, how much? You, it's hard to know. With any science, when there's a correlation between two things, you, you always have to then go like, okay, did A cause B or did B cause A or did A and B both get caused by some third factor? A and B are always doing a tango and C and D are involved too, yeah. And I assume there hasn't been as much research in uh, what's called doo-doo transplantation uh, as there has <laughs> in humans. I don't know if people have you found... Know, people- remarkably more accepting of this of fecal transplants than like i would ever you know when i first heard the words fecal transplant like like no nobody will be okay with this and then you know i'll bring it up sometimes over dinner usually because that's the best place to bring it up of course (laughs) and and people are like oh yeah we did that oh really (laughs) you know people wait i forgot one person we had we had one one guest on our show once a comic guest on our show who uh, brought up a story of a self-administered fecal <laughs> transplant that was both impressed and shocked us in equal measure. Yeah. <laughs> but it's crazy yeah, how fast it's taken it, over as a thing yeah. people are okay with. It involved it's... an ex-boyfriend and a blender. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just... Oh my god, oh my god. You know, we, we used to think that that was only something that like the Germans did in porn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, our, our other host has a great bit about uh, if you lost the World War II, you are now into the weirdest porn. <laughs> That's just something about being an Axis oh power. Oh, This That's is right. I forgot Jesse Case had that bit. Thank yeah. the greatest generation wise. Yeah. Still- so, <laughs> where do we go from there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that has thrown so, me a bit. We've but, gone big, we've gone small, we've gone fast, we've gone deadly. Well, let's talk about frogs a bit because there's a, there's a whole series of chapters on frogs and what both the commonest and rarest frogs teach us. Yeah. Yeah, so we have, um, you know, frogs, as, as a lot of people know, are really good indicator animals. Um, and yet they, and, and they are also, every, as pretty much everybody who is ever in middle school or high school anatomy remembers, are like a really common research animal that we often get our first experience with when we're dissecting something. And, you know, when I was a kid, uh, that was the first animal that I got to dissect was a frog. And I made a little frog marionette out of it, which might explain why I failed that class. <laughs> and ended in the military. It's like there's a whole... <laughs> right. like, is, is, um, oh, so it's not supposed to be singing, hello, my baby, hello, my darling. That's not part of the actual assignment. <laughs> I threw it. So my my high school didn't have walls. It was one of those kind of like hippie schools that was built in the nineteen like early 1970s where like, we don't need walls. Walls separate students. And... <laughs> Walls also separate noise, as it turns out. So we, 
And they've rebuilt that school since then, and now it has walls in it. But at the time, <laughs> it was just these big, open, wide wings, and then we had just these partitions behind between classrooms. And I took my frog, and I put some strings around it, and I threw it over the partition, and I made it dance. <laughs> and I was waiting for somebody to scream, and all they were doing was giggling. So it was kind of a little disappointing. Um, but yeah, but so we all have these experiences with, with frogs and we know that they're indicator animals and we know that they're used often in biomedical research and we've learned a lot from them. And yet we have done a really poor job at studying frogs in the extreme, the, the Goliath frog, which is the size of a human cat, a human cat, sorry, the size of a house cat. (laughs) Going back to Stan Lee, Human Cat. Yeah, really I know. Cool. Or the movie that's just about to come out. Just oh, right. so <laughs> picture terrifying. James Corden in a cat costume, and that's how how big this frog is. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I'm picturing. Hold on. Yeah, that got was it. Everyone got it straight. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> uh, so the Goliath frog is this huge frog. It's the size of a of a cat. Uh, in Cameroon, they call the frog the baby frog because it's the it's also the size of a human baby. Um, and we have almost no research on this thing at all. There are hundreds of thousands of studies into frogs, but they're almost all the frogs that exist in the middle of the spectrum of size or in the middle of the spectrum of metabolism or the middle of, uh, the spectrum for, for whatever the trait is that you want to study. We don't do a very good job of studying the things at the extreme and the Goliath frog is, nearly if not completely functionally extinct uh in the wild and has disappeared before we really had a chance to study it do you have any theories as to how it got to be i mean i guess cope's law would dictate frogs would get to be some frog had to at some point right yeah um i mean it it was not hunted widely for a very long time it was in, in a relatively sparsely populated airy, uh, sparsely humanly populated area of the world for a long time. Um, it's sort of a, it's, it, it doesn't exist at sea level. It's sort of a mid range elevation animal, which means it can, you know, it's got a lot of places it can go and hide. And there was a, you know, this is a good environment for a frog to grow, I suppose. Um, but now they're being, they, they're widely hunted for food or they were for a while before they started disappearing. We're widely hunted for food for a while in Cameroon. So giant French people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing these, the Goliaths, those aren't too fast moving, correct? Uh, I don't, I don't believe so. I think they're pretty, they're pretty slow. Yeah. But this is something that happens, you know, when you get to what I call, you know, there's Cope's rule and then I call it Cope's cliff, which is the point at which you reach that point at which, whatever it is that made you superlative in some way becomes your detriment, right? And this happens, we see this this in a lot of cases, this happens to really large animals because they become a bigger target for predators and they become slower. And of course, once you become really big, you can't reproduce as quickly. And so like these things start, these things that allowed you to survive over time, getting bigger or bigger or moving into whatever the niche was, become at some point your detriment and you fall off the cliff. Well, I remember a, a couple of years ago going a little break to Catalina Island, which is just off the coast of LA, and it has its own ecosystem there. And the guide, when we did we did a tour, and the guide told us that almost all the animals on Catalina, which are mostly animals that you see on the like mainland Southern California, are about a third smaller. Yeah, because the the scarcity of resources has just caused 
the sort of the reverse evolutionary slide. Yeah, and nearby there, there's uh, they found baby uh, one of the other islands in that chain. They found baby mammoths, or not? I shouldn't say baby mammoths, small mammoths. Uh, the, you know, the the remains of them. In oh, any case. damn! I was hoping maybe I was like, wait, how did I miss this? Oh, remains. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> but that that's very cool. Uh, also, by the way, if you ever, uh, I recommend going on a tour if you're ever in Catalina, and I recommend repeatedly saying Buffalo because the guy will always, cr- the guide will consistently correct you to Bison. To bison yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, like like this. So there's you know, like the song "Home on the Range," uh, you know, invokes you know two animals that don't right. exist actually on the range: the buffalo and also the antelope. There are no <laughs> animals in the United States. They're pronghorn, and they are. Also, superlative. They are the the fastest animal, uh, the the fastest mammal in North America. Oh. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and Buffalo Bill. You just you have this idea, and they are like they keep going. No, but uh, yes, the bison are. Uh, by the way, bison Bill. All the buffalo slash bison that are on Catalina were brought there for a film shoot half a century ago, and then just they had the budget to bring them over, and then not the budget to bring them back. <laughs> God, that's great. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, another island on that chain, Santa Cruz Island, has this population of foxes called island foxes, which have evolved there over the course of many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and they are like these little tiny, they're the adorable little tiny foxes. Oh, yeah, Catalina has them as well. Catalina has, oh, the, do they? Okay. yeah, they have the small, and again, it's like a fox, but it's about a third smaller than a fox you'd see domestically. Yeah, they're adorable. Yep. Daughter wanted to bring some home. We told her she couldn't, and she's still trying. Oh. Well, you were mentioning the fastest animal in North America. We didn't talk about what compels an animal. Not compels, but, you know, uh, how things end up becoming slow and still thriving. Like, how how do we explain a, a sloth, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so I, I was so confused. I came home from Peru where I was looking for sloths. And, and I, I say I was, I was chasing sloths, and it's not very hard. <laughs> they're really not hard to find. Um, and, and I was just so confused because I thought that once I saw them in context, once I saw them in their, in the context of their natural environment, that it would all make sense. Cause that's uh-huh. usually what happens. And I'm looking at these things just going like the, the Amazon is such a dangerous place. <laughs> right? Like it, it is. I mean like there are big snakes and there are big cats and there are like, huge eagles that swoop down and grab things and eat them and tear them to pieces and leave their remains all over the place. And how the hell does something <laughs> that cannot run that, how does that survive? How it, it didn't make any sense to me. And so, um, I got home from Peru and I called a sloth researcher and he said, you're looking at it all the wrong way. He goes, yeah, absolutely. Like sloths get picked off on a regular basis by predators because they're easy pickings. But what you're not recognizing is that they have evolved to exist on so little that they don't deal with a lot of the other issues that pick a lot of us off, right? So like a sloth can eat a couple of leaves a day and be perfectly content. And so these things aren't dying of starvation ever, they're perfectly fine. So they just use their life energy to grab a couple of leaves a day, hang out, take a poop, and <laughs> eat some more leaves. And because of this, they, they have proliferated, and they are, they are a huge part of the mammalian biomass in the jungle. And so it doesn't really matter if they lose some. 
So it's kind of like, firstly, there are so many of them, but also they are extremely vulnerable to one of the things that kills off a species, but very resilient to all the other things. Yeah, they're fine in all the other ways, right? Like, I mean, they just like they just hang out. They, just, they don't freak out. They just, I mean, they they pretty much like on marijuana. I think, <laughs> right? And sure, every every half a day or so, like Trevor gets picked off by an eagle, and <laughs> yeah, but the rest of them are fine, right? I think we have to add that to our podcast bucket list of an animal we have to hang out with at some point. So, if any listeners have access to sloths, we want to arrange a field trip. <laughs> At, at you know, uh, Kristen, Kristen Bell, the actress from The Good Place, is apparently really, really into sloths. So, yeah, I think I saw. Didn't Ellen DeGeneres surprise her with one, and she's lost her mind? She oh. cried. It was so cute, <laughs> it, darling. And like, honestly, like I, I think they're cool, right? Because I think everything's cool. I geek out about whatever, but like, I would not lose. I did not lose my mind when I saw a sloth for the first time. Really? Like, okay. hey. Yeah, there was just, and you know what, because it was so, the guy who was guiding me too, he's such a jerk, he's like, I was like, he goes, okay, there it is in the tree, and I said, oh, okay, cool, and he goes, okay, let's wait for, let's just wait for a second, and I was like, oh, is it going to do something, and he's like, shh, just wait for a second, just wait, and we must, I like messed have waited there for 10 minutes, and then he just started giggling. <laughs> uh, good sloth guy joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There was one. There was one small chapter, something that really surprised me. Um, uh, the book's full of things that surprised me, but this is one that uh, I, I, get, I hadn't really thought about, and that's the connection between sterility and longevity. Oh yeah. So as as the editor of this book was like, this makes total sense because I swear to God, my kids have taken off years of my life. Right. Um, but also, yeah, there's there's this so this tree that we were talking about earlier, this really large aspen tree in central Utah, which is the world's largest known organism, uh, is also sterile. So so you go like, how the heck does something that's sterile last so long? And one of the reasons why is it 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 proliferates underground, right? And it, it uh, you know, connected by this inter- interconnected root structure. And so even though it can't continue to uh, create new trees or new organisms in the way we typically think of, it's in- it doesn't expend any of its energy doing that either. It can just spend its energy getting bigger and, you know, moving into different parts of the soil and searching out water and searching out sunlight when it shoots stems upward. Um, and, and so like there's, I think there's this really fascinating connection where things that are, uh, sterile tend to survive. And we see this in, in quite a few very, very ancient organisms, um, which are, which are all sterile, but they've managed to survive for thousands and thousands of years. Right. And, and this is, I th- am I right in thinking that the book you're working on next is actually, is all about longevity and. Um, actually, so the, the book that I just, uh, completed, it came out a couple of months ago with, uh, Harvard geneticist named David Sinclair is about uh, uh, human longevity science, right? Because you, you okay, cool. Because you get you get you get into that quite a bit in this book as well. In the middle, where you're talking about what humans can learn from other organisms and how long they live, and some of the surprising long lives of some of these organisms. 
Right, right. Yeah. Like, so, you know, like oldest has always fascinated me and like old organisms, obviously like bristlecone pines and, and ancient Aspen, uh, clones. Uh, but humans that live a long time are fascinating too, because we tend to have a shelf life and our shelf life tends to be somewhere around 80 years. And it's been that way for a very long time. And now there's scientists who believe we can extend that, uh, in no small part by looking at organisms that are related to us that have, extended that like the bowhead whale shares a whole lot of genes with us but it lasts many times it can last many times longer than us so how is it doing that and what can we learn from that right and that that also connects a bit to the earlier chapters when you're talking about like the elephants and how you know just the, both the longer you live and the bigger you get the more chance the more sort of bad lottery tickets your body is potentially buying that can you know create cancer or create heart disease or any of these things that kill you off Right, which is why the elephant had to evolve a way to stave off cancer, right? The elephant, the, you know, the, because in order for it to do that, there had to have been at some point a gene that said, hey, wait a second here. If we're going to get this big, this is like in my mind, this is how genes work. They have a really yeah. funny voice and they say things like, hey, wait a second here. <laughs> if we're going to get this big, we need to look out for this thing. And so you evolve a workaround to that thing, whatever that problem is. And and really kind of a theme throughout this book is, you know, can we identify what that workaround was and we, can we apply it in some way to our lives? And one of the criticisms of this book, and I think it's a really valid criticism, is that the book is kind of based on this idea that there's some way that we can benefit. And a lot of people are saying, hey, look, like science shouldn't be just about how we can benefit it. You know, it, there is a place for just looking at nature and going, wow that's really cool. Let's just let that be really cool. Uh-huh. But having said that, are you at all optimistic about applying this? To, are you a biohacker? Are you trying to do things in your own life to uh, to be the first person to reach 200 or something? <laughs> I'm not. I think there are people uh, who are in far better situations to do that than I am. Um, I, you know, like I figure I'm too far gone at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had a guest on who used to take metformin every day, which I think is a diabetes drug. I forgot what it's intended for, but is one of those yeah, things that biohackers fascinating because it's been prescribed as one of the safest drugs in the world. It's one of the most widely prescribed drugs in the world uh, for diabetes. And a few years ago, scientists noted that like uh, not respective of any other factors, uh, people who were on metformin were living longer. And there's a, a big study right now. It's called uh, the TAME study, which something aging metformin something anyway, uh, which is trying to establish whether or not metformin is indeed the world's first longevity drug. Uh, and uh, yeah, and the researcher that I worked with on the last book, which is called uh, Lifespan, uh, David Sinclair, he takes metformin. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to be the guinea pig for it, but as soon as they if they determine it's the wonder drug, yeah, I'll start taking that. Yeah, you know what, David? It's really interesting. Like what David says, and I think what a lot of people say about um, about these potential longevity drugs or molecules or whatever you want to call them is, you know, like uh, we all know what's going to happen to us if we don't do this stuff, right? So, you know, yeah, you might be playing, you might be playing with fire, but you, we all end up in the ground anyway. <laughs> Good point, right? Yeah, you're only postponing it. Um, yeah. What what was your we we should wrap up soon but what was what was your favorite uh chapter to research what what or what, uh, what surprised you the most or excited you the most 
<laughs> I mean, like, I think you guys can probably tell I get excited about pretty much anything. So <laughs> this question is, is always tough, but, um, look, I got to hang out with some, some dolphins and dolphin researchers in, in Florida. And, uh, when I, you know, like when I was a kid, my parents' favorite joke was like, you know, like what's Matthew's future career today because it was always changing day by day. And I told you guys, I, you know, I wanted to be a comic book artist for a while. Uh, I wanted to be a professional wrestler for a while. (laughs) I, but I really, for a while, I really thought it would be really cool to be a dolphin trainer. Like that was, I, in fact, I had a fish, a goldfish and I trained it to do tricks because I figured I was train goldfish. You can train goldfish to do tricks. You can train them to like, like you drop a hoop in there and they'll, they'll swim through it for a treat or, you know, like you can train them to do all, do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, not, they're not super bright, but they're bright enough to do some very basic kind of like, oh, if I do this, then I get a treat. Okay. Um, but yeah, so getting to hang out uh, with dolphin trainers and, you know, like interact with the dolphins and like getting to touch a dolphin was really kind of a kind of a um an amazing treat and this is what i tell my students right it's like nothing else like go into science and or go into reporting i'm a, I'm a journalism professor like if, if nothing else go into these careers because it's going to be so much fun and you're going to have adventures and yeah. and have a life that actually is enjoyable as opposed to one that's you know where you're stuck behind a desk for eight hours a day well, uh, our friend for sure who's a comic and a past guest on the show but is also a marine biologist used to work with dolphins in florida as well and he i remember him saying some of the things about how they interact with humans and how like they would always remember him even if he'd been away for a couple of years he'd come back and the individual dolphins would know who he is and and also the dolphins if the the people who ran the swimming with dolphins groups uh forrest was telling me a while back the dolphins would always know when one of the guys in the group is a dick and would treat him accordingly <laughs> i've heard that about dolphins too you guys have one you guys have time for one more story about elephants oh, oh we yeah, absolutely do yeah. we have okay. we have pl- plenty of time okay great so there were there, there were these two elephants that were um that came to be together um at this in this one kind of elephant sanctuary and when the one showed up this other elephant from kind of across the sanctuary came running and then they they meet each other and they start like you know like rubbing up against each other and they're trumpeting and they're all you know they're having a great time and the researchers suspected that these two elephants had met each other at some point (laughs) in the past and so they start going back, you know, through the records, through the records, through the records, and they can't find it. So they dig closer and closer, and they finally find that, like, 20 years earlier, these elephants had, like, spent a week together. Wow. Jeez. And it, when they were in, like, they, they were in rival circuses or something, and they came <laughs> to the same place for, like, a joint show for a while. And then they went their separate ways. But 20 – and, I, you know, putting that into human context, right, like – I, I don't remember what I did last week. And if even if I did have like an amazing experience with somebody like 20 years ago, we like went off and did something together. If I saw them 20 years later, I wouldn't even recognize them. Right. Yeah. Just a week. You know? No, no way. Yeah. Yeah. The, these elephants remember each other. The elephant, and you know, we say elephants never forget. And that's more than just a cliche. Uh, elephant memories are absolutely astonishingly 
uh, uh, bright and and clear, and it's it's really amazing to know that we share the planet with these animals that do things even that we think we're good at, right? We think we're so smart, we think we got big brains and are, have such great memories, but they blow us out of the water. Yeah, it's incredible. As is so much in this book. Again, the book is called Superlative: The Biology of Extremes, and we recommend everyone check it out. It's a great read. Yeah, it's it's a thoroughly good read. It's a, it's a it's a it's a speedy read, but not not a light read. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you so much. And, and yeah, Matthew D. Laplante, as as you're officially but not socially titled. <laughs> Mate, th- thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And you guys, it's, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for chatting with me. All right, cheers. Mm-hmm.